You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. Imagine this simple experiment. I place a stick in the ground here when the sun's as high as it's going to get. At the same time, a friend 800 miles north in Seattle also puts a stick of the same length in the ground. I'll measure the length of the shadow from my stick and ask my friend for the length of the shadow of hers. They won't be the same length if the Earth is round. There are more complicated ways to establish the shape of the Earth, but this experiment is accessible to everyone, yet some people dispute the results. They insist that Earth's shape is not that of a basketball, but rather more like a frisbee. And their ideas are catching on. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we give you the wide-angle view on science and technology and devote one episode a month to critical thinking, skeptic check. For centuries, the scientific method has been the path not only to knowledge but to power. Those who could measure the circumference of the Earth— determine the orbit of the planets around the sun, electrons around a nucleus, or use high-tech tools to decode the human genome, have had extraordinary access to knowledge. Scientists have a deciding vote in determining what we accept as true, but the rise in the number of people who reject these truths suggests a backlash to this process. In this episode, The Growing Flat Earth Movement, Who Decides Scientific Truth?, and investigating extraordinary claims using approaches that feel like science but aren't. It's Skeptic Check, Flat Earth. When it comes to well-established cosmic facts, a round Earth is on solid and spherical ground. The ancient Greeks, who liked to study eclipses and invented geometry, determined our planet's shape pretty quickly. But hey, why take 2,200 years of careful observation at face value? I'm Jim Underdown, Executive Director of the Center for Inquiry in Los Angeles and of the Independent Investigations Group, and we are on our way to the Salton Sea to see if the Earth is actually round. Knowing Jim for as long as we have means hearing him reiterate his personal motto that time is your most valuable commodity. Use it wisely. So why then would our time-conscious colleague drive three hours into the hot California desert to test an idea that doesn't need testing and that can be settled with a two-second image search? Well, here's a clue. My name is Alex Moshakis, and I attended the first Flat Earth Convention in the U.K., Reporter Alex Moshakis has learned firsthand that what's old is new again, which will eventually bring us back to Jim's Salton Sea experiment. The retro idea that's back in vogue? Our understanding of the shape of the Earth prior to the Greeks. Yes, the flat earthers have gone all pre-Eratosthenes on us, questioning our more than two millennia long understanding of the planet's roundness. The group rejects verifiable scientific evidence that apparently has tricked teachers into outfitting their classrooms with models of the Earth shaped like grapefruits instead of omelets. Now, it may be natural to dismiss the movement as off the rails, but its roots suggest a deep discomfort with the established idea of who has the authority to determine truth. With group names like the Infinite Plain Society, ideas about a flat Earth have spread wildly, mainly over the Internet on YouTube and are given a public boost by celebrities. The YouTube videos have millions of hits, which means at least a growing curiosity about the movement. But the online community is now going offline to meet in person. The first ever Flat Earth Conference held in the U.S. in the fall of 2017 was followed up a few months later by the first meeting of Flat Earthers in the U.K. Journalist Alex Moshakis wrote about the Birmingham Conference for The Guardian. We reached him by Skype, 
Fittingly enough, in the land where some of the first measurements of the shadow of the Earth during a lunar eclipse took place, Greece. All right, Alex, you attended this convention. Describe the feeling of walking into this room. How many people, what the energy was like, what was it like to attend this conference? The actual convention was not unlike a lot of other conventions that I'd been to. I mean, it was in a in a few rooms in a central Birmingham hotel, seats uh, in rows, a uh, small stage at the end. And if you'd walked past and not known what was going on, it would have kind of looked very normal. And it was only when I walked into the room and heard some of the conversations going on that you really kind of realized that something different maybe was being believed by by these people. So that we're clear on this, they do not believe, at least the majority of them, some of them are still figuring it out, but they do not believe that the earth is a globe. What shape do they believe that the earth is? Correct. I think most people are still working out. So the, the universal theory is that it's definitely and not a globe, but people have very different views on what exact shape it is. So some people, I think the, the general view is that the Earth is pancake-shaped and the Arctic is right in the middle and the Antarctic surrounds the Earth at its edges and it's this big wall of ice. But others at the convention were presenting other hypotheses. One speaker suggested that the Earth was diamond-shaped and supported by huge columns and that if you walked off one edge, you'd appear uh, on the other side like a game of Pac-Man. So people are, are yet to agree on a one single idea, and I think a lot of people are trying to get their own theories into the limelight as much as possible. And if you were to walk off this pancake-shaped Earth, you'd still end up on the other side of it, or would you fall off the edge of the Earth? So in that theory, you definitely would drop off the edge, but because there's such a high wall of, of ice, you're not going to be able to get past that. And a few people at the convention actually said to me as well that, that NASA and other government agencies are actually monitoring that wall of ice anyway. So if you made it up to the top, you'd be sent packing immediately. They'd find you. Now, mm-hmm. according to them, is the Earth moving in space? Is it in orbit around the sun? No, so it's definitely not moving in space. It's rooted somehow, and the Earth in these beliefs is very much the center of the universe. So the sun, uh, the moon, it's rotating around our plane. Uh, And that's quite crucial to many beliefs, that we are very much the center of the universe. Do the flat earthers accept that the moon is round or that the other planets in our solar system are round or roundish? Yeah, it depends on the belief. Some people very much think that the moon is round and yet believe that our Earth is flat. Putting aside the centuries of science and the expeditions that circumnavigated the globe, how do they, the flat earth believers, how do they interpret the photos of earth from space and evidence with our own eyes, such as the shadow of the earth across the moon during an eclipse? What do they make of that? So in the eyes of flat earthers, it's all faked. And who it's faked by causes some arguments. Most people believe that NASA is completely fabricated as an agency and that every document that NASA puts out into the world has been fabricated and is fake. So every image that NASA has put out is photoshopped, according to flat earthers, and nothing can be trusted. Uh, A lot of people think that we've never been into space, and in fact, some flat earthers believe that space doesn't actually exist. And the more you ask flat earthers about this evidence, the more you bring it up, the more they'll say, look, this is a piece of evidence that has been planted by a government agency or an elite that is trying to make us believe that the earth is a globe. Now, a woman that you spoke with said, or at least you heard her say this, if if they lied about this, if they lied, they being the elite NASA, the government officials lied about the shape of the earth, what else are they lying about? And the idea is that the notion that the earth is round is just one lie that officials are putting forth, but there are many other conspiracies. And what are the other conspiracies that they believe that this is entangled with? Yeah, correct. So what I found was that if people are believing or subscribing to the Flat Earth movement, then they're often subscribing to other conspiracy theory movements. So someone who believes the Earth is flat will believe that the moon landings were faked. All kinds of conspiracy theories. A lot of people who believe in Flat Earth, for example, are anti-vaxxers and will prevent children from being given vaccinations that are very important and will dismiss conventional medicine. And that's where it gets a bit dangerous. When you ask the question of why these conspiracies exist and why anyone would go to these lengths to create false evidence like this, uh, photoshopped images of the earth, for example, um, you couldn't get a satisfactory answer. No one could explain to you why these conspiracies exist. 
No. One person did say that he thought he considered it cheaper to fabricate evidence of there being a moon landing than it would be to actually fund a a government mission to the moon, for example. But no one else could really explain why this would all take place. Now, did you find yourself, Alex, wanting to argue and throw more and more examples of um, the Earth being round at these believers? Or did you find yourself able to be open and, and listen to what they have to say? It must have been quite surreal. It is surreal. It, and it, but it was really, I mean, I was there with an open mind, basically, and I, and I was very much uh, listening to what people were saying. And, and it, was, it was very, very interesting to hear. What I have to stress is that everybody there was absolutely lovely. There was a warmth at this convention. There was a real sense of community there. And so it was difficult to kind of take this position of antagonist and, and question people over and over again, because they were just so genuinely nice. Many of these members of the Flat Earth movement only have known each other online. And you say that this was a chance for them all to come together and, and meet each other and in person. There were lectures, there were workshops at this convention. Uh, what were the presentations like and did it have the trappings of scientific argument? The talks were in, really interesting. I mean, for me, watching them, they were completely baffling. I spoke to a couple of speakers after they spoke, and they said well, they would perhaps pitch their talks at flat earthers who were already very much aware of the movement and, and who had committed hundreds of hours to research. But still, to me, I think even if you had that foundation knowledge of the flat earth movement, they would be very difficult to understand. They weren't in many ways scientific, although they did borrow a language of science and definitely a visual element of scientific presentations that gave them the appearance of being legitimate. But when you kind of listen very carefully, as a lot of people were doing, you could see through the cracks fairly easily. One of the most fascinating elements of the article that you wrote for The Guardian was when people described to you the moment when they had an epiphany about what was really true. And many of the people had science at school, and at some point they rejected it. They had this moment, and they decided to embrace other ideas. And it sounds as though you were able to pinpoint a theme as to when that epiphany came and the flat earth idea was embraced along with a number of other conspiratorial ideas. And, and what was that moment for many of these people? Yeah, flat earthers call it an awakening. And it's when they've been down the rabbit hole of the YouTube algorithm and discovered that the Earth is flat, and which has led on to other conspiracy theories. The people I talked to, uh, and I spoke to 20, 30 people at the convention, so not too many people, but a sizable number who were there. A lot of people in conversation told me of a kind of personal crisis that they'd been through that had led to them coming to believe in this conspiracy theory. Now, this is not scientific in any way. But people mentioned the breakdown of a marriage or the breakdown of a relationship or some other kind of personal crisis that left them kind of open to listening to views that they perhaps would have rejected. Well, finally, Alex, I wonder if there's any piece of evidence that you think would convince the flat earth believers that they're wrong or that the earth is indeed round. And um, in a moment, we're going to hear of an experiment that a gentleman and his team are doing at the Salton Sea to demonstrate that the Earth is round. But I'm getting the sense from what you said that no matter what his results are, the people that you met aren't going to buy it. No, I don't think they will. I genuinely believe that there'll be no evidence that will convince them that the Earth is a globe. An interesting point here is I spoke to one of the speakers and I said, what happens if you receive proof that the earth is a globe. He said, I'm not worried about that. What I'm more worried about is that I receive proof that the earth is flat, because then what am I going to do? Alex Moshakis is a reporter. He writes for The Observer, The Guardian, and Esquire. And his article about the Flat Earth Convention in the UK appeared in The Observer. Alex Moshakis, thank you so much for speaking to us about this. Thank you, guys. My pleasure. Harry Dyer, a lecturer in education at the University of East Anglia, also attended the Flat Earth Convention and wrote about it, providing insight into what might be driving the movement. When you talk to them, when you hear them speak, they're very engaged with science, they're very engaged with 
the ideas of exploring the world, they just come at it through a different lens, quite a radical lens. They spent a lot of the weekend planning their uh, scientific experiments they want to do to go and, you know, work out which version of the flat Earth is correct. If it's just an Earth that's floating in the middle of nowhere or if it has a dome or if it's inside of an egg or if there's something underneath and on top. They do seem to love science. What they don't love is scientists. They seem to distrust scientists. So it sounds like it's uh, kind of a referendum on science and knowledge, maybe growing out of a frustration that scientists seem to have a monopoly on the last word when it comes to the truth about how nature works. I think so. Uh, Something that was said throughout the um, convention was that scientists aren't doing a great job of explaining themselves and communicating with the general public. They seem to want to, like you say, a referendum to separate science from scientists, to separate knowledge and power, to suggest that the old power structures that have kept a grasp on what we think is real and isn't real for so long need to be challenged. Uh, On the Sunday night, for example, there was a debate between three physics PhD students and four flat earthers, where there was this friendly and quite jovial backwards and forwards between them all. But uh, the flat earthers aren't quite on par with their use of science to scientists. They do seem also very resistant to knowledge. When there was a debate with the PhD physicists, the physicists very diligently answered all their questions about, you know, how the world would work in a globe Earth model. And they just rejected that because it didn't fit their model. So they're not very open to hearing alternative ideas. So it's the authority of the scientists that they're rebelling against. At least it sounds that way. Obviously, they're not the first in the history of humankind to rebel (laughs) against authority. Uh, You know, not so long ago, all authority resided with the theologians, right, with religion. They knew what the facts of the world were, and, uh, you know, that was unchallengeable. But today it seems to be the scientists. So these people sound like, you know, heretics of 500 years ago. Right. And in many ways, that's how they see themselves as, as, you know, pushing the conversation forward away from what well, actually maybe back towards religious beliefs. A lot of the uh, the weekend was spent talking about the four pillars of the earth and talking about Bible readings. And it was undertones of religion there the entire time. And it did seem to be in a, in a way that we moved away from church and secular beliefs. We seem to be moving more towards science and i think with the internet and with these sorts of meetings maybe we're moving back towards different belief structures uh, I, I have a hard time explaining this and, and passing exactly where we are going as a society and you know just how much flat earthers can tell us about the world but i do think it suggests that we're moving away from a trust in science in the uk around the brexit vote we had a lot of talk around being fed up of experts and experts who were talking about the economy and the future of the EU, and it became a discussion around emotions and around feelings and around gut beliefs into what was best for the EU. And I know in the American election, a lot of it was around emotion as well. It seems to be the flat earthers are touching into this populism, this rise towards emotions and try and understand and make sense of the world that they live in and less of a trust in science itself. Harry Dyer, thanks very much for talking with us. Not at all. Thank you. Harry Dyer is a lecturer in education at the University of East Anglia. You can find a link to his online article, I Watched an Entire Flat Earth Convention for My Research, Here is What I Learn, on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Up next, how science knows what it knows about the shape of the Earth and Jim's experiment in the California desert. Plus, a biologist runs DNA tests on a certain Scottish lake to see what lives there. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science. Skeptic check, flat earth. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
I've learned recently that I am what some members of the Flat Earth Movement call a globe-earther. That is, I believe that the planet is a sphere. I wonder if what's helping feed the enthusiasm for Flat Earth ideas is the fact that the Earth's roundness was established so long ago. I mean, we've forgotten why we've known that we live on a globe and not a disk, which gives us an excuse to indulge in one of my favorite elements of Bai Pai Sai, traveling back to ancient Greece. I love talking about these guys because they transformed our understanding of Earth without any fancy equipment. They used the geometry, which they had invented, and deductive reasoning. They also have good food. In 240 BC, around the time that Archimedes was showing off his insight about the relationship of a circle's circumference to its diameter. I've got it. I'm the first to calculate pi. Want to hear me recite it? No, we trust you, Archimedes. You're super smart. 3.14159. During that time, the Greek mathematician and geographer Eratosthenes became the first to measure the Earth's circumference, at least as far as we know. He did this by comparing the length of the shadows thrown by a stick in Egypt and a stick of the same length in Greece. At noon during the solstice, the Egyptian stick cast no shadow, but the stick in Greece did. So by using the length of that shadow and some simple geometry, he could calculate Earth's circumference. And he got the answer right to within 5%. When in the 1500s, Magellan's ships circumnavigated the globe, you can be sure they didn't expect to sail off and over the edge. It had long been established that the Earth was round. Well, he's not in Greece, but he's still doing what the Greeks might do if they were in the California desert at the Salton Sea. Jim Underdown, the executive director of the Center for Inquiry in Los Angeles, is planning a public demonstration of another way we know that the Earth is round. In the summer of 2018, he will travel west from L.A. with a telescope, a helium-filled balloon, and a National Geographic Explorer camera crew to film the answer to a question. If you're on one side of a lake and it's 10 miles long or the Salton Sea is 10 miles across, how high would a balloon on the other side have to be before you could actually start seeing it? The idea is simple. If the Earth were flat, he could see the balloon even if it were only a foot off the ground. Sure, at 10 miles away it would look small, but that's what the telescope is for. But if the Earth is round, well, at 10 miles, the landscape will have curved down enough to hide the balloon until it gains some real altitude. His team chose the Salton Sea because there aren't a lot of people or traffic, and the clear air provides good visibility. But still, doesn't it feel a little been there, done that, to determine the shape of the Earth? Uh, I'll tell you. I, I mean, we were so close to not doing this because, yes, the of course the Earth is round, um, we're not going to see if the Earth is round. We're demonstrating in a couple of different ways that it's round and showing some different ways that anyone can see the curvature of the Earth without being 40,000 feet up in the air in an airplane or being in the space shuttle or something like that. All right, so then let me get this straight, what you're planning to do. I mean, when people ask you, all right, you're going to the Salton Sea, but how is that going to prove the Earth is round? Maybe, maybe you could describe that. I mean, what what's the actual demonstration going to be? Well, part of the, the premise of many of the flat earthers is that they believe that water is flat. Well, water is always flat. So theoretically, you should be able to stand on one side of the Salton Sea. And if you had a powerful enough telescope, you should be able to see somebody standing at the other side of the Salton Sea 10 miles across, or in the spot, we're going to be 9.6 miles across. So what we're going to do is point this telescope across, and you're not going to be able to see anyone over there. And on the other side, some people with a giant target that we are going to raise up in the air with the help of some helium is going to start floating up in the air, and we're going to wait till you can actually see that from the first side. But they're not going to be able to see it until it's about 34 feet up in the air. And that's going to be a very visual and obvious demonstration that the Earth is, in fact, curved. I mean, I was out there a couple of months ago doing a exploratory, just a scouting mission. And just to look through a telescope and see some of the water in focus and then it just sort of drops off is not something that you, you think about or see very often. So 
just to sort of get a good look at the curvature of the Earth in different ways up close in these conditions, I hope will strike them as being important evidence. Is there anything that could go wrong with this demo? Yeah, there's a few things that could go wrong. Thanks for asking in case it blows up in my face. Uh, <laughs> the two big things that couldn't go wrong are if it's windy or dusty out there and the conditions of the air and the atmosphere are bad just for seeing long distances, that'll be a big problem. Plus, it'll be hard to float our balloon up in the air if it's too windy. The other thing that can happen is occasionally a temperature inversion can happen where two layers of air actually help promote a mirage type of a situation, and it actually may bend the light around the curve of the Earth. So we're hoping that by getting there at the crack of dawn on Sunday morning that the conditions will be okay, there won't be much wind, and that the air will all sort of be the same temperature and we won't have to worry about this weird, freakish mirage situation. Jim, I know that you're familiar with many of these challenges to modern science or even modern accomplishment. For example, the 10 or 15 percent of the public that thinks we never went to the moon, but they will often bring some evidence to that argument. They'll say, well, now, wait a minute. There are no shadows or there are multiple shadows or whatever. They'll look at the moon photos or, you know, they have some argument which you can't dismiss really out of hand. You need to know what's going on to explain. Do the flat earthers bring any sort of reasonable argument to their point of view? Well, some of these atmospheric conditions raise questions in people's minds. You know, a mirage is a real thing, and that's a weird situation. And sometimes you can see great distances where you shouldn't be able to see, like another shore. There was a situation up in Lake Ontario where people on the New York side could see parts of the city of Toronto that they shouldn't have been able to see because of a temperature inversion. So, you know, when people get hold of that, a lot of people will say, aha, they are lying to us, and how come I can see all the way to Toronto when your numbers with the curvature of the Earth say that isn't possible? So certain things like that are actual physical properties that we have to be aware of. Well, finally, Jim, are you going to publish these results in some refereed scientific journal? Well, I think it'll probably end up in Skeptical Inquirer magazine, and it'll end up on the Independent Investigations Group website and probably one of the CFI websites. And then, yeah, National Geographic. Look, this is all assuming it all goes well. If it doesn't go well, I'll, you know, I'll be moving to Borneo or something. <laughs> Jim Underdown, thank you very much for speaking with us, and good luck. Thanks for having me on, Seth. Jim Underdown is the executive director of the Center for Inquiry in Los Angeles and of the Independent Investigations Group. Really, this is so gosh darn simple. Consider, if the Earth were flat, you could see the Empire State Building from 50 miles away in New Jersey, but you can't. You can find a link to where Jim will post the results of his experiment at our website, bigpicturescience.org. Well, here are a couple other quick experiments you can do to verify that our globe is truly global in shape. Go down to the beach with binoculars and watch a ship sail out to sea. When the ship gets about three miles away, you'll see the top of the craft, but not the bottom. And a few minutes later, you'll only see the funnels. The ship has disappeared because of the curvature of the Earth. Ambitious types could construct a rocket as rapper B.O.B., a flat Earth believer, plans to do, and look at Earth from high altitude. And if you do do this, by the way, send us an email and tell us what you see. Now we travel from the California desert to an island north and east for another example of how science is addressing a different extraordinary claim. Nestled in the Scottish highlands is Loch Ness, a deep freshwater lake, long, shaped like a cigar, or given today's theme, a thick pancake, as seen on its side. It's a beautiful lake, one of many along the Great Glen Fault, but the most famous photo of Loch Ness is of a rather small portion of it and features what looks like a sea monster with a long graceful neck and several humps poking above the water. 
First published in 1934 and since revealed to be a simple hoax, this photo may be disqualified as compelling evidence, but it hasn't ended interest in the Loch Ness Monster. One scientist said we need more than a blurry photo anyway to prove Nessie's existence, or lack thereof, and he's off to see if he can capture DNA of the creature. Neil Gemmell, a professor of genetics at the University of Otago in New Zealand, and his team mainly want to catalog all the species that make this deep lake their home, including some invasive species. But because all animals shed DNA as a matter of course, his team's DNA sampling of Loch Ness could reveal whether it contains a famously camera-shy prehistoric reptile. We talked to Neil while he was getting to work on the shores of Loch Ness. I'm looking at Loch Ness this very minute, and today we have sampled water at about 15 sites already. We're taking a litre of water and three separate replicates of water, and then we are extracting the organic material from that and then the DNA from that and sequencing it eventually to figure out what actually is living in Loch Ness. Now, I have no idea if the monster legend is true or not. I'm highly sceptical, to be honest, but what we will find out is what's living in Loch Ness in June 2018. All right. Okay, now, uh, the question I think that occurs to me first is, well, wait a minute, whatever's living in that lake isn't uh, voluntarily sending in DNA samples into the water there. How does the DNA actually get into the water? Well, that's a very good question, Seth. So the reality is that life's pretty messy. So as we move through our environment, we leave traces of our passing all the time. So whether it be flakes of skin or dandruff or pieces of hair or eyelashes or whatever it is, from which we can then extract DNA and actually identify particular individuals or particular organisms. And it's just the same in Loch Ness. Now, whether we will detect something like a Nessie-like creature, I don't know. But if this thing is as big as people say, you know, two or three buses in length, a large creature, however mysterious, if it's biological, then it should be losing pieces of itself in terms of skin or what have you, or peeing or pooing or whatever you like, that should be detectable. So... What species do we know about that actually inhabit Loch Ness? I mean, I assume there's some fish. There are probably lots of bacteria. What's in the lake? There are about 13 species of fish that we know regularly inhabit Loch Ness. So these include things like trout and salmon, sticklebacks, minnows, eels, lamprey, that sort of thing. And occasionally some pink salmon have just been seen in Loch Ness. So they're an invasive from the Pacific Northwest. So it's kind of curious that they're just starting to turn up here. But that's another story. There'll be bacteria too, of course. There'll be diatoms, small algae, there'll be invertebrates. You know, there's a couple of things we're quite curious about, particularly for the microorganisms, about what's living deep down in Loch Ness. So what does the life there look like? Uh, Is it the same as at the surface? I would very much doubt that. Uh, There's also bacteria that we know in Loch Ness that are probably uh, using methane as a form of energy. So there's, there's methane seeps where the water becomes quite different from its surrounds. So we'll be sampling there just to see what we can find uh, in those locations too. I mean, the real point of the expedition is to describe the biodiversity of Loch Ness as well as we can. Now, very few of these species have been sequenced, had their DNA sequenced uh, entirely. And I sort of wonder, does that present a problem if you're looking for a completely new species like Loch Ness. Well, I guess it's not new in the popular imagination, but I think that if you went to San Francisco and you scraped the sidewalks looking for DNA, you know, you would find human DNA, presumably. But, you know, if you were looking for, for example, chimpanzees, you know, their DNA is 98.5% or so identical to human DNA. I mean, would you be able to tell if Nessie was actually in this lake because you've never seen its DNA? That's a good point. So it's fair to say that we haven't sequenced all life on Earth, but we've sequenced enough representation of life on Earth to be able to uh, identify sequences down to particular groups, whether they, they won't necessarily be at the species level, but they might well be at the level above, which is uh, sort of you know genus or family level. So I might not be able to tell you that we've found a Nessie, but I could perhaps potentially tell you that we've found something that is large and reptilian. That would be quite an astounding discovery anyhow, right? Didn't well, they... that, would, that would be a phenomenal discovery, and I'm highly dubious we'll find that. But likewise, if we can't find evidence of a plesiosaur, that wouldn't bother me. Neil, if you don't find DNA of Nessie, will you be able to claim that the case on this uh, this monster is closed, the reptile doesn't exist? 
Or, or do you think that people, no. will, people will keep on saying, it's in there somewhere, this is a big lake, it's deep, it's dark? What, what do you think? Oh, look, we're not going to stop people from believing in the monster, not one iota. You know, one of the things about science is it's powerful in that it's very good at testing hypotheses, and if we find evidence, then that's um, quite compelling. But where we find no evidence, uh, that's one of the weaknesses in science because it's hard to prove a negative. People have already said, well, you know, you're coming at the wrong time of year. Nessie's on holiday. There are submarine caverns. Nessie goes out to sea from time to time. Uh, And then, of course, my personal favourite, Nessie is an alien. So this is why we go out and we seek to understand and explore because we don't know all the answers. And hopefully what we'll also do is we'll draw people in on this adventure and let them make their own minds up because all the data will be in the public domain. We'll analyse it as best we can, and other people will explore it and make whatever interpretations they want to from it, Seth. So, you know, this is why I think this project is neat. Uh, It's an opportunity to bring people along on an unusual adventure, if you like, an adventure into the unknown, at least with respects to Loch Ness. Neil Gemmell, thanks so very much for taking time out from your work there and talking with us. You're very welcome, Seth. Neil Gemmel is a professor of genetics at the University of Otago in New Zealand. We reached him by phone on the shores of Loch Ness in Scotland. Up next, when amateur paranormal groups chase evidence for ghosts, UFOs, and Bigfoot, it sure looks like a scientific investigation, but is it? It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science, Skeptic Check, Flat Earth. Here's a partial list of scientific instruments used by paranormal investigators. Electromagnetic field detectors, remote thermometers, infrared cameras, full-spectrum cameras, night vision goggles, audio recorders, and motion detectors. Professional skeptic Jim Underdown gives an example of how these instruments might be used. They usually go to places rumored to have some sort of spiritual presence or that have some interesting history like a murder attached to them. Besides walking around in the dark with the hair on the back of their neck standing up, they'll bring audio recorders, low-light cameras, heat sensors, motion detectors, and the big daddy of them all, an EMF meter. EMF, or electromagnetic field, is actually used by electricians and geologists and other people who are looking for electrical or magnetic fields. Ghost chasers use these meters because they believe that ghosts interact with electrical fields. So when the light goes on or the meter jumps, they say, we got one. Geologist and science writer Sharon Hill's book is Scientifical Americans, the Culture of Amateur Paranormal Researchers. Scientifical is her term for activity that attempts to mimic science, but actually isn't. She researched and even traveled with investigators from three paranormal areas who were looking for evidence of the extraordinary. Cryptozoology, which is monsters such as Bigfoot, ghosts, and UFOs. Some investigations find a home and an audience in shows on cable television. But even if they are not television personalities, the members of these groups tend to share a similar approach, pursuing the paranormal with what looks to be scientific rigor. They bring to the investigations real instruments, although a few are rejiggered as ghost detectors, but without an understanding of the scientific method. The result is not science, but something that looks impressive and science-y, and an untrained eye could have trouble spotting the difference. We have to consider that most of the people who are doing these investigations are not trained scientists. They don't generally have any experience in science. They haven't done a degree in science. They don't work in the fields of science. People perceive science as being related directly to technology. So if it's technological, it looks scientific. And there's some problems with that association. But the gadgets that they use are a means of looking objective. I'm not saying I feel it. The equipment, the instrument is saying something is going on here. And it looks very impressive when they haul all their cases in and they set up their equipment with lots of wires and blinking lights and things like that. And I've had them tell me that their clients, the people who have the so-called haunted house or haunted building, are really impressed 
by the amount of equipment they bring in. You joined a group seeking apparitions, spirits, in an old fort outside of Philadelphia. Uh, You didn't experience anything untoward, but some members of the group did. Can you tell me briefly what happened? Well, I was invited to join the ghost hunting group, and they were on a casual investigation of Fort Mifflin, which is a what they consider a prime haunted spot. But it's near the Philadelphia airport, so it's quite noisy. It was kind of difficult, I think, to hear spirits perhaps walking by, but it's also near a swamp, so there was a lot of mosquitoes buzzing in my ear. But uh, they went around with their equipment, and we stood around and asked the uh, darkness some questions, if anyone was around, if the prisoners that were there one time were still around. And lots of people felt touches or heard sounds, and some people even said they saw shadows, and one person even said they saw a full-bodied apparition in Revolutionary War clothing. And I saw a lot of bugs and a lot of people passionate about what they do and enjoying what they do, but I didn't see any evidence of the paranormal. So what do you think was going on there? I mean, they saw it and you didn't. Yeah. Like I said, they're really passionate about what they do and they have a existing belief in the paranormal. They, they do feel that there are spirits out there and that they can communicate with them. Did their stories agree? I mean, did people sort of see the same thing or did they just sort of relate, well, that was a little odd or I felt this and so forth without too much correlation you know, among them? Well, I think they have a great expectation of what they're going to experience when they're there. They're actually primed with these historical stories about the site. Of course, that location was particularly historical, went through you know several wars. And that type of reinforced ideas primes people to experience certain things. So when the anomalies that they perceive are happening, they attribute that to what they wish it was, which is paranormal activity. Well, that gets at the question of, you know, what's wrong with all this in a way? If the public develops the idea that science is merely drama with gadgets, as you write, I mean, I don't know, is there any real harm there? Or what, you know, what's not to like in a way? I think there's several things that can go wrong. One is I think that it promotes a view of science that is inaccurate. Science really can't be done by any person walking off the street. And what we see in society today is what I would see is a lack of respect for authority and experience. Scientists, just like doctors and architects and dentists, and they work really hard at their craft and they have to go through quite an ordeal of learning to get to be that expert. But instead, these people come right off the street and just use gadgets and jargon and behaviors And unfortunately, a lot of people do consider them as experts in the field, and they're really not. The second thing that they often do is they go and they present classes or presentations to the public and act as experts. And they occasionally charge for that expertise. Most of them do not, but they do accept donations. And sometimes they do get kickbacks from selling the equipment or promoting the equipment. And of course, if you're on a TV show, you're also getting paid to do that or getting ad revenue from your YouTube channel, which is uh, popular these days as well. This is how this stuff gets transmitted. The internet has been huge in gathering people of like minds, and it is a, a means for them to distribute their material all over the world. And it's really caught on. You, you know, paranormal investigation is normal these days. It doesn't seem so weird for your neighbor to be investigating Bigfoot or watching for UFOs. Not, not like it used to be, because the media has helped normalize it. You also follow people who investigate cryptozoology. They're looking for Bigfoot, Yeti, maybe the Loch Ness Monster. And uh, you write that these investigators often do not have a zoology background, and they're not educated even in mythology, which would be relevant. What is the role of mythology, by the way, in cryptozoology? Cryptozoology is my favorite subject. I've been interested in Bigfoot and monsters ever since I can remember. It's an interesting subject area because it's not always about the zoology. It's not about biology. It's a lot about people's perception and the psychology of a scary experience of seeing something in the woods that you're not familiar with. It's it's very frightening. And it also has to do a lot with our folklore. If you hear about cryptids, often they have an urban legend or a folklore aspect to them. It's very common to hear that, oh, native mythology talked about this type of animal. And instead, they take over what they can 
from the native mythology, pick and choose those features in the mythology and apply them to a modern sense of what they think the animal today looks like. And there's a mistake in doing that because you're taking it out of context. So it does matter if you are familiar with the folklore and what the folklore means in its own context. The people out there looking for Bigfoot almost always do not have any background in wildlife biology, zoology, anything like that. Sometimes, though, they do. Sometimes you have forest rangers who say that they've seen something odd. And I really do wonder what they've seen in the woods. I don't think it's a Bigfoot. But when you say that you've seen a Bigfoot or if you say you've seen a lake monster, you're talking about a certain experience you had. You had this experience of seeing something you don't understand being a bit freaked out about it, and now you have something that you can tell everybody else, and the story gets perpetuated. You know, one of the reviewers of your book observed that one of the worst things in the science-y thinking here is that if some of these paranormal researchers were actually to discover something important about a new species or visitors from another world or something, due to their lack of academic training, they might not realize it and the discovery could get lost. (laughs) That's true. They don't necessarily know the process of taking the information that they have, making something of it, and then presenting it to authorities to make that decision. The way we discover reliable information is it goes through these channels, these checks, these balances, this peer review, and then a publication where people validate what others have found. And instead, what we have here is people going out and looking for the Bigfoot body or something like that. I really hope they find the Bigfoot body. That would be awesome. But instead, many of them are out there trying to maybe make a buck off of that. They think that they're going to make a million dollars if they find a a Bigfoot body. Or they argue about whether they should kill one, if they see one or not. And uh, I think they're kind of missing the point. Really, science is a community effort. It, it, It helps society in general. And I really wish that they would understand that whatever they find needs to be shared, and maybe we can find something interesting there, no matter what it is. So, Sharon, why do they continue to pursue these fringe science questions with such enthusiasm, even when they don't turn up, you know, evidence that gets published in a referee journal? I mean, is this a matter of their outsider scientific status, that uh, they don't need that kind of validation, and they just, you know, point to the academics and say, well, you people are closed-minded, or you won't look at the evidence, you know, what are they really searching for? So I often wonder if they, they really want to know the answer, or if they just want to keep feeding that worldview that they have. You know, if you're going to be a little bit skeptical about their interpretation, they don't accept criticism very well. They're not open to criticism, which is something that scientists are really used to. We always get yelled at about our stuff not meeting certain standards or or having mistakes in it. Instead, the paranormal community is known to close off criticism from skeptics and actually be really hostile to anyone who is critical of their work. That's almost a feature of the things that they do, which is a shame because... I think that they can really improve. Sometimes they do have interesting information, but if they were more open to suggestion of here's what you can do and here's what you should look at instead, maybe learn about camera artifacts that can cause you problems, maybe learn about the local wildlife, maybe learn about the psychology of perception and the errors that people make, that would make you actually a better researcher. But instead, they stick to this very narrow focus, and I'm not sure they really want to know the right answer. Sharon Hill, thanks so very much for speaking with us. It was my pleasure, Seth. Sharon Hill is a geologist, a science writer, and the author of Scientifical Americans, The Culture of Amateur Paranormal Researchers. So what we've heard in the show is that many of these amateur investigators are excited by really extraordinary claims, ghosts, Nessie, a flat earth. But while they want to use science to look into this stuff, they seem to have a growing rebellion against not science, but the science establishment against scientists. So that puts them in the curious position of claiming that they're using science, including the instruments of science, 
but rejecting the knowledge of professional scientists. And so what is the difference? The, the difference is that science is a self-correcting enterprise. And how do you compare the investigations by some of the paranormal researchers, for example, with what Dr. Gamel is doing at Loch Ness, looking for the DNA of the Loch Ness Monster? Well, I think the difference is exactly that, that Gamel, if he finds something that indicates that there's some big, giant creature down there, obviously he will publish the results, they'll be reviewed by other biologists, and you can bet that two weeks later there'll be a whole bunch of them descending on Loch Ness trying to reproduce what he found. Well, thanks to the duo whose enthusiasm for helping produce big picture science never goes flat, senior producer Gary Niederhoff and operations manager Barbara Vance. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Sholsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including understanding the shapes and behavior of asteroids. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science. This episode, Skeptic Check, Flat Earth. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science episodes and more Skeptic Checks, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. You can also find links there to our guests. You may be listening to our radio show, but did you know we're also a podcast? Subscribe to the BiPiSci podcast and you'll never miss an episode. You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.